Now friends, um, do you remember that Jesus said, some people would say, the old is better. And he was saying this relative to the fact that he said he was going to replace the old wineskin with a new wineskin because he was going to provide new wine for people to drink instead of drinking the old wine. New wine would destroy the old wineskin and he was going to put the new wine into a new wineskin. Now people use this illustration for lots of things. Every time there's another move of the Holy Spirit and another denomination springs up, they say, oh, it's a new wineskin. But that isn't what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about one particular old wineskin, the biggest thing that God had done in the world up to that point. But he was about to do something that was even bigger. And it had been, in fact, the purpose of God from the foundation of the world. Remember, Christ slain from the foundation of the world. He was about to launch the genuine thing that was the real thing. The new was the real, the old was a shadow. The old was temporary, the old was based in symbols that were physical, tangible, visual, temporary. And he, but they were pointing to something that was eternal and invisible and spiritual. The old had no real power, the new had power. The old could not forgive sins, the new was founded upon the power of the cross to forgive sins. The old wineskin, now what is a wineskin? Think bottle. Look, we have something right here. There's, it's not, it's not a wineskin in the sense of a container made from a goat skin, but it's a container that holds this uh, representation of wine here. So you're talking about the valuable thing that had to be contained and the container that made it possible to hold it. Now, what if I said to you, Noel, played a trick on you like I've done once or twice before. And I said, look, I want to give you this, this wine here. Hold out your hand. And I poured it in. What would happen to it? If I said, look, I want you to take this home to your wife and kids, you know, share it with them. Would it get there? Now he needs the container. And so with respect to what God was doing in the world, both the old and the new, it needed a container or it couldn't be held. It couldn't be passed from one person to another. It, it needed some way in which you could capture and hold the blessing that God was pouring out so that it was useful. Because without the container, what's on the inside is not very usable. If I pour this out on the ground so there's no container, it's still in the world, but it's not available to us. It's not usable by us. It's not transferable. And so the wineskin is a very important part, not, not of the life, but of our ability to handle that life, to understand it and to do something with it. The old wineskin that contained the, the work of God, the, the, the truth, 
the grace of God, his dealings with mankind, was Judaism. But we're talking a special kind of Judaism, not the Judaism that's in the world today. That's a different thing altogether. The Judaism that's in the world today is, is a, a form of Judaism that was put together by the Pharisees, those who rejected Jesus, those who tried to kill Paul, those who hated the gospel after the destruction of Jerusalem. In AD 70, the temple was gone, the priesthood was gone, the sacrifices were gone, the whole Levitical economy was gone because God destroyed it. What did they have left? They had Pharisees, they had the traditions that man had imposed on Moses's form of Judaism, the very traditions that Jesus said were no good, the very things that Jesus said by their traditions, they had made the word of God of none effect, they clung to those things, codified it, they, they had the synagogues, and so you had a new form of Judaism that didn't need a temple, didn't need sacrifices, didn't need priests, the very things that were part and parcel of the old wineskin. The old wineskin was destroyed. The old wineskin we would call Mosaic Judaism, that is, it was the Judaism established by Moses uh, at Sinai with the law. That was the old wineskin. And under the old wineskin, there was a way in which to understand the work of God in the world. Scriptures were given. Scripture, those scriptures are very important to this very day. Scriptures of the Old Testament are very, very important to us. The Pentateuch, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the, uh, the prophets. In fact, the early church for a long time, they preached the entire gospel of Christ. Everything we have, they had. They preached it all from the scriptures of the Old Covenant, the, uh, the Old Testament. But Jesus said the container was going to be replaced and what was in it was going to be new. And so Judaism was removed, that is mosaic, that is biblical Judaism was removed. And in its place, was put the body of Christ, the body of Christ. Jesus also replaced the temple. Jesus replaced the city within the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is above, and he replaced the land. And he himself said that he was the true Israel. He's not only the true Israel, He's the true land. Now, that's a subject for another day, but, but I'm trying to give you a bit of background. Jesus said he would put new wine in a new wineskin. And yet there'd be a few who would say the old is better. Well, as it turned out, the gospel was preached extensively and everywhere the apostles went, they first preached it to Jewish people. Not, not only did, I mean, Jesus said the gospel was to be preached in Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world. But even, um, and of course they went to village after village, all the towns of Judea, Galilee, because, in fact, many, many churches were established all through Judea 
And they became the foundational churches. Their, their polity, their practice, their doctrine is what multiplied through the world. But even when the apostles went out to all the nations of the Roman Empire and beyond, they went first to the synagogues. And the reason was, and it was, and it was the Lord that set that priority, the reason was, the reason why you will read in your scriptures this day, you know, the gospel was preached to the, the Jew first and also the Gentile. The idea was to get every possible believing Jew in the world into faith in Christ. In other words, get them out of the old wineskin and get them into the new wineskin. And so when you read the Acts of the Apostles and when you read the epistles and when you read the book of Revelation, you'll find many occasions where apostles were persecuted, the church was opposed with scoffing and ridicule, and if you'll read it all again, you'll find that this was a case of, in that period of time, it was the Jews who did not believe in Jesus who persecuted the Jews who did believe in Jesus. It was a Jewish phenomena. Consequently, even in the book of Revelation, where you read Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches, in two of them, he refers to synagogues of Satan that were attacking the local churches. And so the big issue in that period of 40 years between the resurrection of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem was not the opposition of the world at large to the church. It was the opposition of the unbelieving Jews against the believing Jews. And so you'll read, for example, Paul's list of sufferings. He says, five times I was given the 40 lashes minus one by the Jews. And you'll see those little references everywhere. And of course, when they have that expression by the Jews, they're referring to, you know, specific Jewish people, not Jewish people as a whole, to whom they had every compassion and, and love, and, and which we do to this day. But... Um, that the issue there, the, the Roman Empire did not turn against Christianity until the later years of Nero. Now, when Paul on his trials, in his trials finally says, I appeal to Caesar, and uh, the judge says, well, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. The Caesar that Paul appealed to was Nero. Nero up to this point was not, had not opposed the church. Paul wouldn't have appealed to him if, if he did not in fact think that government could be appealed to. And he was tried before Caesar and released. He was released back, of course, later on things turned against the church when Nero needed a scapegoat. Uh, about the same time that Nero sent the Roman army to invade Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, he also turned against the church in Rome, and that's where you get all those great stories of persecution from. Each of those periods, by the way, the period of from when, from when Nero commissioned the Roman army to go until the final destruction of Jerusalem was three and a half years, and from when Nero turned on the church until his suicide was three and a half years two three and a half year periods, both of which are referred to in the book of Revelation, but which are not butted up and therefore seven years. No, they mostly overlapped. So this was the background. And 
the apostles in the early church extensively preached the gospel through the known world, but to the Jews first, and many Jews became believers. In fact, you will read in the Acts of the Apostles that it said in Jerusalem that many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, there's an astounding thing. And so you ended up in the church, of course, this tension then between, well, do we, do we keep the law rigidly like we used to or not? And that's another discussion. But um, the, the issues were in that period largely Jewish issues. However, large numbers of Jews became Christians, came into the new wineskin, the body of Christ. But they were opposed and scoffed at and Peter refers to this when he talks about the scoffers who say, where is the promise of his coming? And so this gospel being preached to Jewish people, a very big part of it, especially to the Jews in Judea and in Jerusalem especially, a very big part of the gospel was God is going to destroy this city. Christ is returning in power to judge the city and destroy it and destroy the temple, and not one stone will be left upon another. They preached this authoritatively because Jesus had made it very, very clear that this is what was going to happen. And so a very big part of the early preaching of the church was the destruction of the temple. And so you can imagine if you were a Christian, a, 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 a Jewish uh, leader of the Christian church, say you're one of the apostles or one of the deacons, or so, in fact, there were huge numbers of very mature Jewish people who become Christians, and they're preaching the gospel all through these neighborhoods. They're urging their Jewish friends, Jewish family, Jewish neighbors, urging everyone in the synagogue, put your trust in Christ. You know, he's died for your sins. This is the Lamb of God. They're using the scriptures to preach it, and they're saying the judgment of God is coming. And that it's all in the prophecies too. Like the prophecy of Joel. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he, you know, the Holy Spirit's been poured out. They're speaking in tongues. The crowd says, oh, they're drunk. Peter says, no, 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 they're not drunk. This is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and they'll all prophesy. But Peter quoted another bit that nobody's ever done much with. He, that in Jerusalem, there's not only this great outpouring of the spirit and servants, Maid servants, they'd all prophesy it. Old men see dreams and all the rest of it. But there would also be blood and fire and vapor of smoke in Jerusalem. And you read it right there in Acts chapter 2, all prophesied by Joel. Except these, this prophecy is jacked apart, the fulfillment of it jacked apart by 40 years. These prophecies are all there. See, the early church is preaching this. You know, save yourselves from this untoward generation. You've read that phrase in the scripture. So this, this appeal was being made. Well, now, here's what happened. Time goes on. 10 years goes past. 20 years goes past. 30 years goes past. They're still preaching, Christ will destroy the city. Christ will come in power. Christ will judge. Save yourselves, you know, flee to the cross. Flee to your Redeemer. But now persecution is rising in the empire. The times have become clouded. More than 30 years have passed by. 
And so this is where you get Peter's reference to, you know, the scoffers will say, oh, where's the promise of his coming? So this tension rises in, in Jewish society, Christian and not Christian, about where's, he, where's his coming? And because persecution is now setting in against the Jews who are Christians, guess what? A lot of temptation under the, under the Roman Empire, the law was you didn't have to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar. And in the early days, Christianity was seen as simply a sect in Judaism. But now all of a sudden, the pressure and the heat is on the Christians. And where's the promise of his coming? And so there was huge temptation to, the, to many of the Jews, not all of them, but to many of the Jews who'd become Christians, to turn back to the old wineskin, turn back to Judaism and find safety from this persecution. Now, that's the scenario. 30 or 35 years have elapsed. We're now into AD 60 or 65, and there is a need to address these Jewish Christians. Large numbers of them under stress and pressure, under temptation to slip away from Christ and go back to Judaism. And that is the background for the epistle to the Hebrews. It's why that book was written, the only epistle in the New Testament for whom we do not know the author. And the identity of the author has been hidden purposefully by the Lord. Because if if people knew who the author was, both in that day, well, the immediate recipients knew who it was. But if with a short passage of time, people knew who it was, or even to this present day, the condemnation and criticisms would be aimed at the person. Oh, he's that kind of person. Or he's not got that kind of prejudice. And, and so you would use insult to cause people to pay no attention to his words. And that, that's the kind of thing that happens today. But because it's anonymous, well, as far as we're concerned, author unknown, you can't do that. You, you can't criticize these writings on the basis of, oh, that's just Paul and he had this attitude and that. You can't do that. You've got to deal with the meaning of the words. The Lord intended this letter for a very important purpose. It has always been my favorite book in the Bible. You could spend your entire Bible reading life, reading this book over and over, and you'd not be disappointed. Now, the fellow who wrote it, I wish all of us could preach like this fellow thinks and writes. And the pattern of the book is astounding. And it's amazing how often, in explaining one thing, he makes an allusion to something, but as the book goes on, the thing he alluded to opens up more and more, and it's got these overlapping waves of information. The, the main theme through the whole book is that Jesus is better, is superior to every single thing in Judaism. It starts off 
by talking about how Jesus is superior to angels. Now, why would it begin with that? Because that doesn't mean a lot to us. But it meant a huge amount to Jewish people. The Jews had the belief that the old covenant handed down at Sinai was handed through the mediation of angels. Angels were very big in their theology. And angels would turn up all through Old Testament scriptures. Often it was Christ called the angel of the Lord. But they, they had a very important place in the firmament as far as the thinking of Jewish people were concerned. Uh, very high rank, if you like, ranked the, the intermediate work of angels ranked more highly than Moses. So it comes up first, first thing it comes up in the book of Hebrews and he explains why Jesus is superior to angels. And then by the time you get to chapter three, he explains how Jesus is superior to Moses. Now for those two, by the way, he's going to raise 14 things that Jesus is better than. But the first two, he doesn't use the expression better than, he uses a different expression, superior to. And this is because the writer takes a lot of trouble to really honor angels, but even more to honor Moses. Because in the firmament of Jewish thought, these things could not be undermined. So he's saying these things are hugely important, but Christ for these reasons is actually superior to them. And then he goes on with a, the book is full of a whole lot of other things that Christ is better than. I'll read you the list I put together. A better high priest, and he's established a better priesthood. Uh, it's, it's a better tabernacle. The, there's an invisible, a spiritual one in the heavens, a better tabernacle than the one on earth. He has a better ministry. He's established a better covenant with better sacrifices. There's a better blood and there are better promises. There's a better hope and a better law and we come to a better mountain and we have a better altar. You'll come across all these things in the book of Hebrews. So um, you might think, for example, that in the central, you could probably pick any number of things and say this is the central word in the book of Hebrews, but based on what I've just said, we could consider Hebrews 8, 6, that says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent, as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. So you've got two betters right there, but, but listen to this extra bit. Since it is enacted on better promises. So you've got three betters in one verse, but that, that's an interesting piece of information, that what we have in the body of Christ, what we have in the new covenant has better promises. Would you like an example, one example of a better promise before we take a look at a few things that are in chapter one. Everyone in the world seems to be familiar with the idea that God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham. And it has led even to this present day, you know, all kinds of political struggles. 
And I'm not commenting politically, we're just thinking Bible theology. There were promises about that land, and on another occasion, we'll look at those and what they mean. But as an example of what was a promise under the old covenant being transformed into an even better promise in the new covenant, Paul says very clearly in Romans chapter 4, not that God promised Abraham the land, but that God promised Abraham the world. Now you know why, it's what it's all about. It started off in a microcosm, but the whole intention was in the end, all nations. You go back to the promises to Abraham, I'll make you the father of many nations. And, um, and that's why Jesus, in, his, in the temptations of Jesus, when you read of them, we're given only three examples, but there might've been dozens or hundreds over 40 days. The, of the three examples of temptations we are given in the gospels, the third one, like the, the culminating temptation was the temptation from Satan, if you will worship me, I will give you the glory of all the nations. Now he's a liar anyway, but aside from all of that, the reason this was a temptation for Jesus, you know, to obtain the nations, uh, is because it's why he was actually here. The reason Jesus was sent into the world was to suffer so as to obtain the nations as his inheritance. You come across Psalm 2, where God the Father says to God the Son, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. I think you heard David say a week or three ago that Jesus is the true Israel. It's true that the true Israel is one man, but it's also any believer, Jew or Gentile, that is in him, anyone in Christ, is the true Israel of God. Paul, writing in the book of Galatians, says that when God made his promises to, to Abraham and his seed, the seed was singular. There's a lot more Bible evidence to this than you might know. Paul says straight out, the promise was not to Abraham and his seeds, plural. I know in English it's funny because it's the same word, but, but he said, but to seed meaning one person, that is Christ. You read it in the book of Galatians. So the promises that God gave Abraham were only for two people was Abraham and one person who would come, who would be the true seed of Abraham, who would be the true Israel, Jesus Christ. And this is why the gospel was preached to the Jew first and also to the Gentile to get every last possible believing person into Christ, our hope of salvation. So the promises to Abraham were promises to Jesus. No wonder then Psalm 2 says, ask of me and I'll give you the nations. The nations had been promised to Abraham. No wonder then that when he comes 
And suddenly, after being baptized in the Spirit, he must be tempted. It's all part of his sufferings. We'll find in the book of Hebrews that it will tell us that our high priest, our Redeemer, was made perfect by suffering. You think, how could the sinless Son of God, how could God, how could the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the sinless, holy, fully authoritative, sinless Son of God be made perfect? Wasn't he already perfect? He had to be made perfect as a redeemer. If he's going to be a man, he must be tempted. If he's going to be our redeemer and be our sinless high priest, he must be tested. He must suffer from trials. He must suffer from affliction, from hatred, from betrayal. He must suffer socially, must suffer in the body and come through all of that he has been made perfect as our sacrificial lamb. Perfect as a redeemer, perfect as a saviour for the human race. None of that was to make him perfect as God. Without experiencing trial, the process had not been complete, but it was completed with these sufferings. All these kinds of things are in the book of Hebrews. Most wonderful, wonderful book. Where were we? The temptation of Jesus. Worship me and I will give you the nations. Why did Satan know that was the big temptation? Because he knew and Jesus knew that's why Jesus was here. To get the whole world. A week before he goes to the cross, in public in Jerusalem, he proclaims, because he rejects the temptation, to worship God only, but a week before he goes to the cross, he proclaims, now the God of this world will be cast out. He goes to the cross, he comes back from his resurrection and says to his twelve, or 11, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore you go to all nations. Suddenly it's not about one little dusty piece of real estate, it's about the whole world. And it's not just about real estate, it's about the hearts of men and women. Which is why in the New Testament, the church is called God's field where a local church is called God's field. It's why in various places in the New Testament, your own life is referred to as soil, as land that is meant to produce a good crop. You find that over and over. So living in the Holy Spirit, that is filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, walking by faith and prayer and victory and enjoying the life that Christ gives us, that's living in the land. Christ is that land we live in. And then we are part of that land that produces fruit. The same is true of the temple. Christ is our temple. He replaced the temple. He replaced the high priest. He replaced the sacrifice. He replaced the altar. Christ became everything. All of those things were symbols of Christ. So anyway, friends, better promises. 
It's Romans 4, 13 that said, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. There it is. That's the New Testament emphasis. No, no early Christian, no Jewish Christian, no Gentile Christian would have thought twice about the need to possess real estate as being, you know, the holy spot that God will bless. Immediately, no, the whole world is the Lord's. And out they went. There was no more any emphasis on, oh, living in that land, being born in that land, dying in that land, being buried in that land, had nothing to do with it. You were in Christ. Christ was now. Christ was the land, Christ the city, Christ the temple. These are realities that Christians must have or you end up being religious fanatics. You end up being driven by some, really, really by aspects of the old wineskin that have been warped. Anyway, uh, all, all of that is kind of, you know, background. Let's read a few, a few, we don't have very long now, so just a few minutes and I'll wrap this up as it's kind of an introduction to the book. But we may as well just start to read these, these early verses in the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, David wants me to kind of, um, you know, preach the whole of the book of Hebrews, but there's no time for that. It's huge, but what we'll do is we'll cherry pick. And um, along the way, over the next few months, if I get a chance, I'll pick a few more cherries and, and try and give you a picture of this most, most wonderful of, of books. <coughs> Written to Jews, yes, but so embodying the truth of Christ, you cannot live without this word. My suggestion is, <coughs> go home, read the whole book. <laughs> You'd be surprised at all, all that is in it. Anyway, Let's, let's just make a little bit of start here before we share some prayer. So, Hebrews 1, chapter 1, and most Bibles put little headings every here and there, and the ESV heading right off is the supremacy of God's Son. So we read now, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Right there, pause for thought. What, what is that first verse telling you right off? It's written to Jewish people. Spoke to our fathers. Who did he speak to by the prophet? He spoke to Israel. And so no, it's specifically written to Jewish people. Spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the, look at this, heir of all things. Remember we just talked about that? Not, not just this narrow inheritance of this piece of real estate, heir of all things. Through whom also he created the world. Ah, well see, the, the truth about Christ just gets bigger and bigger. The Paul's epistles also tell us that God made everything through the Son. And um, God spoke and it was done, but the speaking, that Jesus is the word of God. And, you know, all that is a bit beyond our understanding, but the fact is the New Testament attests to it over and over and over that creation was through Jesus. He made everything. But it says a bit more here in verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact, exact imprint of his nature. 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Even right now, everything you have, the chair you're sitting on, it's held together by the word of Jesus. Now, this truth is attested to in many, many places. Anybody who doesn't like it, they're not just arguing with Genesis 1, 2, 3. They're arguing actually with, with, with the whole entire Bible. This witness just comes up again and again and again that it is the word of Jesus that put it there and the word of Jesus that holds it there. Now, years ago, I remember... I was praying about something really important. I was out on a mountaintop and, and it was someone that I was greatly, greatly burdened for. And I was pleading with God for the soul of this person who had come into a, you know, doubt and temptation and slipped away from the faith. And a scripture came to mind, which I'm going to show you in a moment, about the, the power of the word of God. It said, you know, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded, it stood firm. And that passage is actually about his creation of the universe. In fact, we'll, we'll show you. Psalm 33, 6 to 9. Uh, if the fellows can pop, there it is. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps into storehouses. That's references again to the oceans. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. And I was in prayer this day out on this mountaintop and concerning this situation that so greatly burdened me, I said, Lord, if only you would speak. If you just speak a word, it'll be different. If you will just speak over it, it will change. I spent 20 minutes imploring the Lord, asking him if he would speak over that situation. And after I'd sought the Lord, I laid, I laid my Bible on this rock and and read this and quoted the Lord, Lord, you've said, you know, you speak and it's done. Lord, would you speak? In the end, he did speak. That person was totally changed. So that's sometimes what you've got to do to get the breakthrough, is, is stick with it and have a good argument with the Lord until you get the breakthrough. The Lord actually loves a good argument. By that, I mean, he loves you putting up a good case, you know? And um, he just loves that because it's faith. So anyway, what do we read? We read verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, okay, here's what's going on in the book of Hebrews. He is introducing Jesus. All the people he's writing to know about Jesus. They've heard the gospel. But he's making very strong declarations again about who Christ is, his position in the scheme of all things. And because it's leading up now to him making this very important statement in verse 4. Um, having become, okay, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is where he, they know of Christ, they know of the gospel, but now he has got to lay out a case telling them whatever you do, don't go back to Judaism. Don't throw it all away. And this is where he starts. He is superior to angels. Well, my time is up. But, um, and there's two whole chapters on angels. We're not going to spend two whole weeks. But let's read at least the first quote he gives here. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God. So he's quoting back to them all these Jewish scriptures, explaining Jesus so superior until he gets to the point where he's got God the Father calling God the Son, God. Do you see that written right there? This is astounding stuff. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a robe. You'll roll them up. Uh, you're the same. Your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And, it, and, and, and this is the end of the chapter. We'll conclude with this. Um, two verses. His, his final statement about, well, it's not his final statement about angels, but in this chapter, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. And from that point, he goes into a warning against neglecting salvation, which we'll look at another time. In the book of Hebrews, there are six passages, they're major passages in, in that they're made up of four, five, six, seven, eight verses each, six really prominent places in which you are warned and warned and warned not to drift away from the faith, not to neglect the faith, um, not to take it for granted. Um, you, I'll show you some of those as we go along. All right. On another Sunday, I'll explain to you better, more clearly, what the land of promise means for Christians. Anyway, let's, let's just be quiet before the Lord for a few moments. The Lord speaks by Holy Scripture. You'll find the Lord will speak more to you when you're reading the Holy Scripture than pretty much any other way or at any other time. If you've not been reading Scripture, you are leaving yourself rather weak and poor. Reading Scripture day by day just five minutes of reading scripture would put richness in the soul and you develop the ability to hear God speak and you come to see with the eyes of the heart the face of the Lord Jesus. You must read the scriptures. And Father, I pray that these, the believers gathered here, those online would not be like trees of righteousness where the river has run dry. You said they'd be planted by rivers of living water. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that you give. I thank you, Lord, so much of that flows to us through the word you have spoken to us. Do I ask, Lord, that in the hearts of your people, once again, would there would rise a love of the Bible, 
a deep desire to read Holy Scripture. I ask the Lord that that grace would come upon us today. I thank you that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, our teacher. And I thank you that that anointing is upon the hearts of your people. I pray today that in the wisdom that that grace gives, you'd cause every heart here to have somehow an inner desire, an inner longing, a yearning to find out what the Lord has said. And thank you, these are living words that break over our souls. And I pray that that living word would come afresh to every believer. Thank you for the healing that comes through your word. You've said you sent your word and healed them. I think there's healing power here available today. And in the name of the Lord Jesus, I place it upon every home, every family, every heart. And I release to every one of you the healing power of Jesus. And now may you find it. May the Lord grant you grace to find it in your homes, in your hours, in your days, because it has been granted to you. I bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus. May his word come to you each with great power. And now the grace of God, the love of our Lord Jesus, the holy fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit rest and abide upon every one of you. In Jesus' name, I say peace to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, in the prayer, what rose up there strongly for me was this urging over reading the Bible. If you're not reading the Bible, it's like having pot plants you never water. And fruit trees you never water. It's there, it's alive, it'll live for a long time, even through a drought, perhaps. It's not going to be very healthy, not very vigorous, won't look great either in the long run if you're not reading the Bible. He says, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Let me tell you, those rivers of living water flow best, flow mostly to people who take in his word. The Holy Spirit always seems to flow more powerfully when you have the word of God in you. Not only so, in that prayer came up a scripture text, a text that says he sent his word and healed them. It's no good you're sitting down. If you never read your Bible, no good sitting and saying, Lord, I need healing. You know, would you give me the word of your healing? The book, the, the book is actually full of the words he said. And if you know the words, if you've been reading the words, it's easy then to say, I have the word, you know. Of course he sent his word and healed us. We have these words. The power, power in these words. You develop again a love of, of you know, a few minutes every day. Take in words. Let words wash over your soul. You'll come face to face with Jesus. Without that, I cannot promise you that you're anything other than dry. So, um, and if young people, you want to go somewhere, you want to find power, you want to find anointing, you want to find grace, you want to find favour from God, you want to find doors opening, uh, you better take in the scriptures, you know, read the Bible. And what is interesting is people who, who want to pray well and pray effectively, you will pray better and you'll pray more effectively if you've read the Bible. It's just very practical. 
It's not meant to be a religious driven thing. It's just, it is so practical. It's like you'd be stronger if you lift weights, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, Spirit of the Lord, keen to say that. Very important. Give the Bible a very important place in your lives. And why not the book of Hebrews? Why not the book of Galatians? Why not the Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of John, Gospel of Luke? They're all good. Acts the Apostles. Uh, back to Galatians, read it all again. It wouldn't hurt you. Galatians, short little epistle. Just the oldest one, oldest, earliest letter of Paul. And he's mad too. You foolish Galatians. Makes very interesting reading. Uh, you know, these people who want to do circumcision, wish they go the whole way and emasculate themselves. The interesting stuff in that book. But I tell you what, you will come face to face with the real gospel. Six little chapters. Read it cover to cover six times. You might then really have a handle on the gospel of grace. All right, bless you. Uh, Jacob, are we going to sing or not sing?